You are listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2022 on Monocle 24, The Globalist in association with UBS. From London, this is The Globalist. I am Marcus Hippi, coming up. Let's be clear, this election is not a referendum, it's a choice. It's a choice between two very different visions of America. We unpack what we know so far from the US midterm elections, now that the voting has finished. Also ahead. And thanks to the excellent international cooperation, we could locate him, arrest him. And that's why we are today in this lucky situation that his trial is ongoing. One of the last main suspects in the 1994 Rwandan genocide is on trial at the UN Tribunal in The Hague. We hear what he's accused of and how he was finally arrested. We'll also discuss the likelihood of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, flick through the day's papers and find out why today is known as National Jealousy Day in Finland. That is said on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Australian Defence Force will launch an investigation into claims that the Chinese government has tried to recruit retired Australian fighter pilots to train their own armed forces. Ankara has repeated its request for Sweden to counter terrorism ahead of clearing the country's application to join NATO. And former FIFA president Sepp Blatter has said that the decision to award the 2022 World Cup to Qatar was a mistake. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said he's open to negotiations with Russia, but only if the talks are focused on the return of all of Ukraine's occupied lands, compensation for war damage and the prosecution of war crimes. Joining me for more is Alona Livko, senior consultant at Atticus Partners and former regional MP in Ukraine. Good morning and welcome to the programme. Good morning, Marcus. Could you first tell us how significant this gesture is now in your opinion, what Zelensky has said? Well, first of all, Ukraine was ready for negotiations since day one of the war in 2014. So there's really nothing new that he is saying. The problem is that Russia was always the one who was violating those negotiations and completely undermining the effort, always playing some sort of games behind the closed doors. Uh, we've seen that with Minsk agreements one and two. Uh, we've seen the readiness for negotiations on Russia's side only when they started losing fiercely. And that's exactly what's happening now. They're only calling for negotiations when they're losing vast majority of their troops and weapons. So what's also interesting is that something's been changing. It looks like that Ukraine's government has had earlier ruled out talks with Putin. It was said that Kiev would be prepared for negotiations, but only with a future Russian leader, not with Vladimir Putin. What changed along the way? Well, I presume maybe he's realized that that could be some time away and every war in this world requires some sort of negotiations. And perhaps I suspect that that was even to please 
the Western partners and to generally set out the rules. Because obviously, as I've said, negotiations with Russia is just not a plausible outcome. It's not going to happen, not because of Ukraine, but because Russia is not ready to actually negotiate and live up to everything they agree to. Um, so I think he's laid out very fair rules of uh, Ukrainian territorial integrity, of Russia pulling out all the troops from Ukraine, of respect to the UN Charter, where Russia sits as a founding member of the UN Security Council, um, reparations and finally security guarantees that Ukraine will never be invaded again. So to which extent is this all about what things look like? Is the real point over here to show to the world that Ukraine is willing to find a solution to the conflict and to be constructive? Look, of course Ukraine is trying to find a solution. We're the ones who are on the front line and carrying the heaviest burden of this war. Yes, we're receiving uh, lots of weapons, military, humanitarian and financial aid from the world. And we're extremely grateful for that. But I think the world also needs to remember that we are actually on the front line losing lives on daily basis. The West isn't. They're providing uh, intelligence support, training. I know that uh, on daily basis, their contact with many governments and MODs in the world. And because of that, we're leading a successful counteroffensive on our land. But we're sacrificing lives. Absolutely. And that should be remembered, obviously. At the same time, is there a worry that if, if Ukraine somehow doesn't show supposedly enough willingness for talks, its international allies may begin to hesitate. I think the greatest example for that would be the recent wobbling of Russia in the Green Deal and the way Turkey has approached it. You could see that as soon as there is a firm, decisive discussion being held with Russia, they comply. We've seen their two military ships waiting near the Bosphorus for the last 18 months to be accepted, it to be allowed into the Black Sea. Those were turned away because of the respect to Montreux Convention. We've seen Russia trying to pull out of the Grain Deal and Turkey clearly setting them back straight. What are, What is your impression about the role Washington DC has been playing in all this when it comes to the rhetoric coming from Kiev? For example, the Washington Post reported earlier this week that, that US officials would have been asking Ukraine to show more willingness for talks with Russia. The US support has been enormous and I would say critical to Ukraine's advances now. The UK has been probably number two supporter if we're leaving out European Union um, as a, a body. Um, everything really, the, the whole success, the future success in Ukraine depends on the US. So it's important to keep that bilateral relationship strong and reliable. Um, there were some talks at the beginning of this war that basically there were two schools of thoughts in Washington, D.C. on Ukraine, one held by Antony Blinken and another one by Jake Sullivan, um, the security advisor to President Biden. And, uh, you know, Ukrainian officials were saying that Blinken was pro-Ukraine, uh, standing up to Russia and not wavering any support for Ukraine, whereas Jake Sullivan was trying to uh, take the negotiations route and to be a bit more flexible with Russia and uh, find various channels of communication. And when he came to Kyiv the other day, um, there were discussions that perhaps this is it. He's come uh, to try to talk Ukraine into negotiations and perhaps maybe even some concessions. Um, but as soon as he left, Ukraine received another $400 million of military aid. So I doubt that that was the case. 
We'll be talking about the midterms in the US and what we know about the results so far in just a moment. But if you look at the way Ukraine has been viewing these midterms and what's happening domestically in the United States, how much concern is there? Politics in the world is always concerning. It's, I share the same concern as I did when the UK was going through re-election of the government and the new prime minister, um, because you actually never know what you're going to end up with. When we look at some rhetoric from the Republicans, it's worrying. Um, but having been in politics for over 13 years and campaigning especially, I understand that that's the message that they're trying to use just to differentiate themselves from uh, the sitting president and administration and to antagonize population and their voters because that's the only way you grab the votes and you get any uh, results from it. On the other hand, we did see the, the far left in Democratic Party who stood up and tried to speak out against continuous support for Ukraine. They withdrew their letter as well. So I think it's all political games. But the main important factor is that 73% of Americans, according to Reuters, are still fully behind Ukraine and support that provision going to Ukraine on daily, regular basis. These conflicts may well continue for a rather long time. How much concern is there in Ukraine about its, its the country's allies getting tired, getting that so-called Ukraine fatigue along the way? Very much so. And I think with the winter, it's it's not getting easier because we're about to face extremely difficult circumstances with a temperature falling below zero. So far, we've been lucky with quite a warm autumn, but we're facing blackouts. My family has gone from six to 12 hour long blackouts in the west of Ukraine. Um, many people are fleeing the country again to the west or in, into Europe to get away from this winter. And it's all getting very difficult emotionally and mentally to cope with, let alone physically. So counting on their Western support and seeing people still coming to Ukraine, like Sean Penn yesterday, bringing over his Oscar, even those symbolic gestures, they mean a lot. So we're really counting on the world's continuous support. Alona, can you update us on, on what's happening in the eastern parts of the country now when it comes to this conflict? Is Russia, for example, withdrawing from Kherson? It seemed like they were evacuating uh, their uh, proxies and Russian citizens who have already moved there. Um, they were deporting many Ukrainians who lived there too. But I think as soon as that became public knowledge and Ukraine started speaking about it um, for the world to see, they've kind of hit that effort and probably stopped caring for people in, in the wake of counteroffensive that's happening. I think we have to be very careful in commenting that. There's very little information coming from the Ukrainian officials on the military operation, and that only means that it's at its most active phase. So I'm hopeful that Kherson will be liberated soon. This war, like all wars, will have to come to an end. How likely do you think that is that that, that will be achieved through peace talks? Well, I... Yes, I will have to echo President Zelensky that peace with Russia will only be um, available when Putin is not in power and when all his proxies and his gang, I don't, I can't find another appropriate word, is not in power either. Russia needs a complete restart um, on its government, on its values, on its outlook into the world. And then the peace talks will be possible. Until then, sadly, they only understand the language of power. 
Alona Livgo there. It is almost 7.12 a.m. here in London. You are with The Globalist. It is 2.12 a.m. in Washington, D.C., 23.12 in San Francisco. Polls have closed across the U.S. and counting is well underway in the 2022 midterms. While millions of votes are still to be counted across the country, we have some early projections that help us to draw some conclusions. I'm joined by Thomas Gift, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center on U.S. Politics at UCL. And still with me here in the studio is Elena Livko, Senior Consultant at Atticus Partners. Thomas, welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us what do the early results show at the moment? Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, you're right that we know a, a lot at this point, but we're still not entirely sure what the uh, Congress is going to, to look like at, at the end uh, when all the votes are counted. At the moment, um, it looks like the Senate is more or less a toss up. The New York Times has a slight edge to Democrats, but there's still a number of key races where it's too close to call. Um, in terms of the House race, that looks much better for Republicans right now. New York Times has that at about a 84% chance of, of Republicans winning. Um, and so, you know, Republicans certainly are going to be encouraged by the fact that they're likely to take at least one of these chambers of, of Congress. But at the same time, I think that they were hoping for more of a quote unquote red wave, that more momentum would go in their direction. And that doesn't seem to be the case. How much can you tell us about how some of the Republican candidates endorsed by Donald Trump have done. Well, it's again been kind of a mixed bag, but I would say in some of the key races, they have not performed as well as I think Donald Trump would have hoped. Um, in Pennsylvania, in particular, um, uh, celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz uh, looks to have lost to uh, John Fetterman. I think that that was a key race. There were some other uh, elections in Ohio, for example, where J.D. Vance, who was endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, did win. So some of these are still uh, shaking out. I will say that I think Donald Trump is going to spin this election in a positive light for him, regardless of these outcomes. Either you know some of his candidates win and he's going to take credit. For those that lost, he's going to say that they weren't sufficiently Trumpian or they didn't take a hard enough line uh, in favor of his uh, agenda. So I think he's really setting himself up for uh, an election bid, regardless of tonight's outcome. What do you think were the biggest themes in these elections this time round? Or did they even matter in the fights between Democrats and Republicans? How much to which extent was this about President Biden? Well, I think it was to an extent a referendum on Joe Biden. I also think it was a referendum on Donald Trump simply because there were so many election deniers and candidates that um, seemed to endorse Trump's uh, policies and claims of election rigging in 2020. You know, ultimately, though, I, I do think that inflation was the top issue if you look at some of the exit uh, polls. And that's probably not surprising given eight to nine percent inflation over the last year that's been sustained. Uh, a, a large percentage of voters also did mention abortion a, as a key issue. I will say that, you know, in some respects, it's almost surprising 
that Republicans did not do better given the state of the economy, given a president that had a approval rating around 40 to 41 percent. That's why I think Republicans really were hoping for more of a significant surge. At the end, a lot of the polls seemed to indicate that they were uh, enjoying momentum as we closed in on November 8th. But it really turned out, I think, to be much closer than uh, a lot of experts were anticipating. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a great question. I think it's because the United States is so polarized. I mean, maybe that's a, a cliche answer. We always go back to this, but Americans are just very, very, very split. And there are a few voters who can actually be persuaded. And I think that's uh, in large part why both Democrats and Republicans are so focused on voter mobilization. They wanna ensure that their bases come out. And I think in an election like this that was kind of framed as a referendum on the current president, on Donald Trump to an extent, and on democracy itself, there were gonna be very few voters uh, that were undecided going into um, this election. Most of them lean either Democrat or Republican. And so despite the fact that there were you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, poured into these campaigns at the federal level as well as the state level, ultimately we kind of get a, an America that, that reflects the constituencies, and that is just about 50% Democrat and 50% Republican. I'm also joined in the studio by Elena Livko. Um, Elena, when we look at these results, what we know so far about the midterms, the midterm elections and the results, how, how positive does that sound like when you look at that from the Ukrainian point of view? I think it was somewhat worrying with various rhetorics that we've heard, as I've said before, from Republicans and from the Democrats. Um, now, the continuous support for Ukraine that's going by the approval by both of House of Representatives and the Senate is essential to Ukraine. Uh, worst case scenario, if the House of Representatives decide to block um, the the help for Ukraine, which I think the leader has already kind of implied that that's going to be happening if they get the majority, which they probably will. There's also an executive order that President Biden can use to allocate aid to Ukraine. Um, that's the mechanism that Donald Trump used on a daily basis and, quite frankly, abused it very often. But then we have uh, mammoths of re Republican politics like Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate, still saying that Ukraine needs to be helped as well as Lindsay Lohan and Marco Rubio and Republicans on the other side as well, despite their newly found allegiance to Donald Trump. So it's going to be quite divisive, but I think these elections, they're kind of... Um, a deal done. Now we really have to look towards the presidential elections in 2024 and how that's going to be a lead up to that race, because that's actually going to be a litmus paper to how the world is going to look, not just the US. Thomas, obviously, Russia, for example, would like to see a very divided United States. What have the Republican Party candidates been saying about military support for Ukraine? And do you think something could change after these midterms, for example? Well, I don't think that there's going to be a stark pivot um, from Kiev, even amid a conflict with no foreseeable end in sight. There is certainly a vocal isolationist wing within the Republican Party, and there is a vocal isolationist wing within uh, the Progressive Democratic Caucus as well. But I do think that there's kind of broad-based support uh, inside the Beltway and particularly the Senate uh, for backing Ukraine's military defenses. And I think that in large part does reflect public opinion. 
Um, recent data that I've seen show that about three quarters of Americans think that the United States should continue to offer financial and military uh, assistance to Ukraine. And so, you know, I, I think in terms of the foreign policy dimensions of, of all this, regardless of how both chambers of, of con Congress um, kind of turn out, I don't think that there's going to be a, a major change in foreign policy. Just finally, Thomas, how long time will it take before we guess a full picture of these election results? That's really difficult to say. I, I think we'll probably know more by the, this evening, but I wouldn't be surprised if a number of these races kind of drag out for um, a week or more. Um, that's even uh, more likely given the fact that some of these races are so close that they could go into recounts. Um, there's at least uh, one race in, in Georgia that looks like it's it's headed for a runoff election because of the particular ways uh, in which that election is structured. Um, so we may have to wait some time um, and, and be patient to get the full picture. Thomas Gift and Alana Livko, thank you very much for joining us today. You are listening to The Globalist. Coming up, one of the last main suspects in the 1994 Rwandan genocide is on trial at the UN Tribunal in The Hague. We'll get the latest. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. One of the last main suspects in the 1994 Rwandan genocide is on trial at the UN Tribunal in The Hague. Felician Kabuka is charged with genocide and crimes against humanity for his alleged role in the slaughter of about 800,000 ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus. He was arrested in Paris two years ago after evading capture for a quarter of a century. Earlier, Monocle's Emma Searle sat down with Serge Bramert Chief Prosecutor of the International Residual Mechanism for Criminal Tribunals. Emma began by asking about Felician Kabuga's alleged role in the genocide. Felician Kabuga um, was a businessman in the years prior to the genocide, with two of his daughters being married to members and family of the late president, uh, very close to the government in place. So he is one of the quite few business people who have been indicted by the tribunal. You know, mainly individuals prosecuted by international tribunals are government responsible politicians or military leaders. Here is one of those cases where we allege that his financial situation, his financial wealth, which played a major role in the genocide on one hand because he was the president, but also the one who initiated the creation of Radio Mil Colin, which was this radio station which was publicly calling for the killings of thousands of Tutsis. If you look at video material about the genocide, you will see a lot of fighters, a lot of individuals who would have in one hand a radio and in the other hand a machete where they were getting via the radio information about locations where Tutsis were hiding. And the second aspect of the indictment is the fact that he massively was financially involved in financing the Inter-Hamwi, which were those groups responsible for those massive killings. 
Well, let's talk a bit about the capture because Kabuga's arrest took place, I believe, in Paris two years ago after he managed to evade capture for, what, a quarter of a century? How did he manage to do this for so long? And what do we know about what it took to eventually track him down? When I took over responsibility for the so-called residual mechanism, which is the successor organization of the Rwanda Tribunal, I really looked at and tried to understand why tracking had not been successful over the last 25 years. And my analysis was that the work of the tracking team was much, was too much based on information coming from sources. There were several dozens of so-called informants who were providing information that Kabuga had been seen in Kenya, that he had been seen in Burundi, that he had been seen in Madagascar, that he had traveled to Europe, that he went to Hong Kong. And almost none of this information was, I thought, really reliable. So we really moved away from those sources, which I think in large part meant less investigation. And we went really back in time to the place where we were sure that he had been at a certain moment in time. And this was in 2007, when under a fake identity, he had surgery in Germany at a time when his son-in-law, Ingera Batuare, was, was arrested in Germany, but no one knew that Kabuga would be in Germany as well. So we looked at persons of interest, people about his surroundings, in large part his family members, and we could see that the large majority of them was living in, in the UK, in Belgium, in France, with little travel to African countries. So we, we looked at the profiles of so-called persons of interest, where they were living, where they had traveled, and we started looking at their movement profiles. And by looking at the profiles of their movements, or in particular, the movements of their phones, we found that for the entire year, always only one phone was locked in at a specific cell tower near Paris, but where none of the family members or friends was living. And it's really by using more modern technologies, financial investigation, phone analysis, that we located this place near France, or at least the cell tower. And then thanks to the very constructive cooperation with the French authorities, in addition to the support we already had received by the British authorities and the Belgians, we could locate a house which had been, or an apartment which had been rented by a person close uh, to him. Now, the additional difficulties has always been by many of our fugitives that they have up to 20 different identities, fake passports, which in fact are real passports in the sense that they are issued by the competent authorities in a number of African countries where it is very, very difficult to find out that they are fake ones. And that's why we had really put during two years all our priorities on this specific case. And thanks to the excellent international cooperation, we could locate him, arrest him. And that's why we are today in this lucky situation that this trial is ongoing. I mean, it's remarkable and such a milestone in and of itself. And going back to the trial proceedings, what stage are we at now? How long do you think this trial could take? The prosecution case will go on for, let's say, three, four months more. Then there will be a short break. And then, of course, very importantly, there will be the defense case. Because we, as prosecutors, we always want, of course, that fair trials proceedings are respected. The outcome, well, you will not be surprised if, as a prosecutor, I will tell you that, of course, 
we look forward to convincing the judges by the large amount of evidence we are presenting in the courtroom. And of course, we hope for a conviction. And just finally, I know your tribunal is pursuing several other Rwandan fugitives. How many Rwandan genocide fugitives remain? And just as a follow-up, given that tracking down fugitives, of course, involves cooperation from multiple countries, are you satisfied that the relevant countries are in fact cooperating? Well, there are still four remaining fugitives we are working on. Having said that, the prosecutor general in Kigali has still 1,200 fugitives. So it's not by closing our four remaining cases that the issue will go away. Now, the main case which is remaining from our side is an individual called Kaeshima, who was police inspector in Rwanda, who was present when many hundreds of women and children were killed in a church where he and others were throwing hand grenades into the church to murder those victims. We had had difficulties with South Africa over the last three years. We located him in South Africa. It took more than a year before South African authorities were willing to look for him at his residence where he was living under fake identity with his wife and his daughter. Unfortunately, in the meantime, he had enough time to escape Luckily, after two very difficult years with the government in South Africa, we are experiencing a lot of progress over the last six months. The Office of the President in South Africa really took a decision there to finally grant our request to have a task force put in place where all operational services in South Africa are represented. But it's still a long road, as I said. The majority of fugitives, definitely those who have financial means, are having uh, fake identities they received based on corrupting government officials in countries in the region, which of course is making our lives very, very difficult. But we remain cautiously optimistic that we will be able to close those remaining cases within the next two years as well. That was Serge Bramert speaking to Monaco's MSL. And here is what else we're keeping an eye on today. The Australian Defence Force will launch an investigation into claims that the Chinese government has tried to recruit retired Australian fighter pilots to train their own armed forces. Defence Minister Richard Miles says his department has turned up enough evidence supporting the claims to warrant an investigation. Ankara has repeated its request for Sweden to counter terrorism ahead of clearing the country's application to join NATO. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is demanding that Sweden and Finland extradite Kurdish rebels before lifting a veto on their membership bid. And former FIFA president Sepp Blatter has said that the decision to award the 2022 World Cup to Qatar was a mistake. Blatter was the head of FIFA when Qatar was awarded the tournament 12 years ago. The Gulf state has been criticised for its human rights record and treatment of migrant workers. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Next to Egypt, as we continue our coverage of the annual United Nations Climate Conference, COP27, the fact that the gathering is happening in Africa again after six years has been cherished by those on the continent. But for others, long travel is still an essential part of their work to raise awareness to the dire effects climate change is having in their region. Take the Pacific Islands, for example, where many communities have already been displaced and the risks posed by climate change threaten their very existence. 
It was this urgent need for action that prompted the founding of the Kyo Climate Emergency Declaration, launched yesterday at COP27. For the organizers, it was crucial that this declaration was community-driven, where the voices of everyday people and not the government are the ones heard. Monaco's Carota Rebello is at COP27 for us, and she had a chance to catch up with three Pacific climate activists, Maina Dalia from Tuvalu, Ray from Fiji and Okalani Marina from Samoa. The Kiowa Declaration is a united Pacific voice that calls for accelerated and ambitious climate action and for increased and accessible climate finance for the frontline communities. So the difference with the Kiowa Declaration and many others that are sort of similar is that it was very much grassroots based. The Kiowa Climate Declaration was built and developed in Kiowa with the community at the front lines and so it wasn't just somebody in a conference room speaking at high level it was very much community-led grassroots led that brought together CSOs NGOs um, and a lot of Pacific leaders who were at the front line to have their story shared and have that space to hold those and create that declaration. It's really interesting what you mentioned there because more and more we're seeing the importance of not just allowing leaders to have these conversations but get civil society, members of the community involved. Do you feel like that's going to be what makes a difference to actually gain momentum for the world to start paying attention to the dangers that climate change is posing for the region? When you read the declaration, literally you're reading the, um, the mind of our communities, you know, the mind of our grandparents, our youths that cannot make to, to COP27. So by reading the declaration and Committing to support the, the declaration, you're literally supporting our community back home. Not like coming to COP empty-handed, but we come here as united. The declaration holds us not just accountable for our communities, but remind us that we have a responsibility to play on behalf of our community. Ryan, for you, what was the important message that you wanted the international community here just observing the event to, what was the main message you wanted them to take with them from all of your speeches and from the declaration itself? From the event, I think the Pacific is fighting to keep the hope of 1.5 degrees Celsius alive and the Kyoto Declaration calls for a complete phasing out of fossil fuels no new fossil fuel projects and the end of financing of fuel, fossil fuel and the other carbon emitting extractive industries. And now if I may ask a, a more personal question of each of you, how is this the issue of climate inaction by the world? How is it affecting your lives? I think for the communities that we were part of the dialogue in Kyoa, it's worrying. It's worrying because we've met communities that are already internally displaced were still not able to find shelter. We met communities that were forced to move because of extractive industries. And from the lessons learned from this community, I think if there is no sense of urgency to address and to keep us at 1.5 degrees, a lot of communities may have to be displaced in the future. And what we're fighting right now is to stay at home as the best option. I think it's really important. I just echo what Ray has already mentioned. It's so important that world leaders take action at this COP right now. The Pacific have had their stories used for decades by world leaders to highlight climate action, but no action within those communities have been done. And so we're tired. You know, we're fatigued telling our stories, reliving our traumas, and that's why it's so important that this declaration be put forward because it's the essence of what we really want done and we no longer just want to tell our story, we want you to act on it. So for this, it's really important for us that they hear us and not just hear us, but act and be called to act.
Are you hopeful for this edition of COP, for COP27, to actually deliver what your communities need? Yes, we always come to COPs with not just very optimistic, but at the same time very hopeful. So despite the fact that we've been experiencing some pullback in, in the past COPs, but what can we do? We, we always come to COPs with very high expectations. So let's continue to have that aspiration and have that optimistic mind to, and hope that you know, this COP will deliver. Many thanks to Monaco's Carlo Terabello for that report from COP27. This is The Globalist on Monaco24. It is 16.35 a.m. in Seoul, 8.35 a.m. in Berlin and 7.35 a.m. here in London. Let's continue now with some of today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is the writer and broadcaster Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Welcome to the programme. Very international papers today. Shall we start with what Le Monde is writing about? A general strike taking place in Belgium today. That's right. Belgium is expected to come to a virtual standstill today, November the 9th, thanks to a general strike called by the country's largest trade unions. And they're demanding a pay increase to offset inflation, which is now over 12% in the kingdom. And of course, rising energy costs that are being seen across Europe. And I found this an interesting story because I think we there are sort of strikes happening all over Europe, actually, sort of reflecting. And we thought this might happen because of the rising energy costs and, and inflation off the back of, you know, quantitative easing during the pandemic and so on. But it is fascinating to see Belgium. There were there have been strikes in France are maybe not that unusual, but continued general strikes in France. Here in the UK, there's a tube strike on on tomorrow, on the 10th, there's also nurses are expected to announce um, a, a, na- a nationwide strike, actually, which I think is the first time in history. So it's, it is reflecting um, increased sort of pressure on governments to be able to deal with this, the inflation and rising cost of living. Absolutely. It was called the winter of discontent that was mentioned every now and then in the media ahead of this winter. But what do you think leaders should be doing about this situation? It's a really tricky situation for everyone. It is really tricky. And of course... European leaders are, want to, are going to want to keep the pressure on Russia and, and so they're not necessarily going to want to change their energy policies. However, um, with you know, coming off the back of the pandemic and with the you know, increased cost of living, I think either they're going to have to find solutions for people and they have quite often, you know, a number of Reuters was reporting, you know, different governments trying to do different things, price uh, wage freezes and price freezes and so on. But I, I do think it's going to, I mean, one interesting case, for example, here in the UK, the there was a, a rail strike meant for this weekend, but that was cancelled because of these negotiations. Um, and so, so negotiations are possible, but people want to see that they're actually being looked after. And I think there is also this sense of um, where is the relief going to come mm-hmm. from? I mean, people have, have struggled with work over the past two years. And so are we going to have another winter of very, very difficult um, prices in living? Exactly. Do you think it's also the government's responsibility to try to communicate why this is happening, why the energy prices are so high, for example? Yeah, I do think this is something people don't have much understanding. Like your average person on the street doesn't fully understand necessarily why they are seeing, you know, their gas prices go up so much, their electricity prices go up. There is definitely value in communicating, you know, the actual logistics of why it's happening and also perhaps a attaching it to a larger story. So if if it is about the the war in Ukraine, then sort of messaging that a little bit more and saying this and continuing to sort of say, this is something that we all want to be part of. This is something we all want to support.
support if it's for other reasons. I think allowing people to understand why things are happening and perhaps their place in it can maybe help people. But I do I do think that it's getting to the point, certainly here in the UK, where people are choosing between heating and eating. And that's not that's never a good place for, for a society to be in. And that was already the situation before the Ukraine crisis exactly. even began. Well, exactly. let's continue with, with news from Australia. Quite a sad story. The biggest health insurer, Medibank Private, has been hit by a massive cyber hack and some information has been leaking online. Yes, so this is actually, interestingly, the second major leak that Australians have had in the past few months. So the Sydney Morning Herald um, is reporting that... uh, Criminal act, essentially, that's what they're calling it. A suspected Medibank hacker's post-stolen data. And so Medibank Private, um, which is the largest health insurer in Australia, um, has had files, initially only a small number of files released on the dark web, um, released on an area that is usually associated with with Russian um, hackers and, and ransomware attacks. And it's, you know, the data includes personal data, such as names, addresses, dates of birth, phone numbers, email addresses, and so on. And for a small smaller group of people, it does also include their health information. And so the company confirmed the leak today on on Wednesday morning um, and says that, yes, this is a sample of the data. Um, Part of the challenge, and this is something that, you know, that companies are going to continue to face, part of the challenge is the ransom or the hackers want money, Mm -hmm. right? They want money for this information. And they say, if you don't give us the amount of money we're asking for, we'll continue to release data. And so the, the government has been pleased that Medibank said they won't pay the cyber ransom because that is the official government line that you shouldn't pay cyber. You know, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese praised Medibank for not giving in to ransom demands. But it is a real challenge for your average person who's like, I expect you, you know, Medibank, or I expect you Optus, which is one of the major telecom um, providers that also had 10 million um, customers information leaked. I trust you with my information. And if you don't protect it, what do I do? Exactly. And and this information that's been viewed online already, the leaked data, it's been confirmed that information includes customers' names, postcodes, data on health treatment for issues such as cocaine addiction. Yeah. So this, this shouldn't really happen. So what kind of questions are being asked? in Australia at the moment? Well, I think you know, there is a cybersecurity minister um, and that is a new thing. But I, I do think that, you know, there needs to be more pressure on the regulatory bodies um, to ensure that when, A, when hacks like this happen, there are more serious consequences because right now there isn't a huge incentive um, when attacks like this happen on the companies to take responsibility. But there also needs to be a, a question of how do we ensure the data is protected? You know, with the, I'm not sure how this particularly happened, but with the Optus leak, it was a basic security breach. It wasn't a sophisticated attack. And so there's got to be, like, cybersecurity generally has to be taken more seriously by companies across the board. Let's leave Australia for now. Let's continue to what's happening in China. You've been looking at this day's edition of the South China Morning Post. Yes, so there's an interesting story about um, the headline is Rich Chinese Eye Life Abroad Among Questions About Policy Direction Under Xi Jinping. And, and so... This story talks about a, it sort of opens with a story about a conference that happened in Sichuan after um, the the sort of major congress where Xi Jinping essentially sort of consolidated his power and saying there are lots of um, wealthy Chinese folks who are looking to emigrate, to leave China because, you know, you've got the sluggish Chinese economy, a slump in the real estate market and the zero COVID policies. And I think sometimes we forget that zero COVID policies are still, you know, 
you know, under existence in China. Yeah. And a lot of wealthy folks are, are sort of concerned about what this means for the for the direction of the country and are considering leaving, which, which you know, of course, the South, um, the South China Morning Post is a Hong Kong based uh, paper. So it'll always be quite a more critical um, paper. But it is interesting to think about if the wealthiest are looking to leave China, what does that mean for the country? That's a very good question. I wonder if, if, if the Chinese leadership is worried about that. I mean, they must be, right? Because I think, you know, Xi Jinping's kind of position is that he will be able to provide for everyone. And interestingly as well, there's this sort of sentiment that um, some of the money that the the most wealthy need have need to be distributed m- more equally, you know, that sort of socialist or communist mentality. Um, and so if you're extra wealthy in China, you might be thinking, well, maybe there is another place for me to go. But of course, that's that might not always be um, a safe thing. So it's it'll be really interesting, especially especially as these zero COVID policies continue to see to see what happens. It's interesting, this zero COVID policy in, in recent weeks, it's been co- becoming clearer and clearer that there is a certain level of frustration in China at the moment because of that strategy. There's only so much that you can do. You can only hold people, no matter how sort of compliant and obedient a population is. If you've got hundreds of millions, billions of people who you're asking to stay at home, you're asking to limit their movement, you're asking to limit their freedom, there is only, a, there, there will be a limit that is reached. And I, I think we are seeing that limit being reached at the moment. Yasmin, let's finish with a story you've spotted from one of the, the British newspapers for, from The Guardian. Um, the oldest known written sentence has been discovered. And what is the, the message the humankind is getting from thousands of years ago? Marcus, if you were to guess what the oldest known written <laughs> sentence to, would be, what would you think? So The Guardian is reporting that this sentence was found on a head lice comb. So an, a comb from thousands of years ago, engraved in the Bronze Age. Um, and essentially the sentence is a prayer. May this tusk root may this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. And I love this piece because it's, you know, it was unearthed in Lashish, I'm going to say, a Canaanite city in the second millennium BCE. And, you know, it it I think for me this inscription is incredibly human. You know, it shows that even, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, what we were worried about was lice in our hair, um, staying clean. And, you know, and this was the thing that people wrote down for posterity. If you were to write a note to future generations, <laughs> you know, who find your note 2,000 years later, what would you write there? One Honestly, or two sentences. Marcus, you know, the first thought that came into my mind when you asked that was, have the thought, but don't tweet it. Like, that's the thought that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yasmin, thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. That was Yasmin Abdelmajid, and you are with The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
It is 15.46 in Hong Kong, 7.46am here in London. You are listening to Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. In Finland, this day has been eagerly awaited by some. The tax information from last year has just become public and the Finnish media has been busy creating lists of the country's biggest earners. And it's not the high earners only whose information is public now. With a visit to a tax agency, you can find out the income information of anyone who has paid taxes in Finland be it your relatives, friends or neighbors. And for more, I'm joined by Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov. Petri, good morning to you. Good morning, Markus. Huomenta. Hyvä huomenta. Can you tell me about the atmosphere in Finland this morning? How much excitement is there? Have you been thinking about making phone calls to find out how your neighbors have been earning? <laughs> I think I'm going to go to the tax office and see how much my boss makes. Uh, so next time I have uh, wage negotiations, you know, I know how much to ask for. No, but in all seriousness, I mean, this is a massive news story every year in Finland when when this uh, tax tax numbers are released. And I mean, I was just watching the morning TV um, from the public broadcaster Ule, and you know, they they had uh, several analysts in the in in the studio uh, discussing this for. Um, the better part of a half half an hour and then you know returning to it and it's it's the main news story also on the on on Helsingin Sanomat um and you know not only for today but you know as as more information um gets comes becomes uh, public you know the more uh, the media start also so digging around um to to kind of study this information more i think it's also important to note that this is, is this is not about gossiping. This is actually a valuable information for the society and noteworthy respected media outlets are doing a lot of coverage about that. As you mentioned, the Finnish broadcasting company or the country's biggest newspaper, Helsingin Sanomat. Petri, tell us about the reasoning behind this. Why should this information be public? Yeah, so the arguments for, I mean, I, I, I'm fully aware that for a lot of our international listeners, you know, this just sounds so sort of out there that anybody can find out what anybody in, in, in Finland earns. But I mean, we have to bear in mind that Finland is a, is an extremely equal society uh, and also an extremely transparent society. So um, the fact that um, all the tax information is public, it, for example, it helps us um, form a better opinion of, of or an idea of, of if there is a gender pay cap, for example. You know, we can see how much women in uh, similar positions to men, how much less uh, they they make. We can see how much our politicians make. We see how uh, wealth is distributed in 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 the society, and of course, most importantly, you can you can uh, find out how much your boss and your colleagues make. So what have we learned so far? What does this information now tell us about where the money is coming from in Finland? Yeah, so it was quite funny. I was actually, I, I told you I was watching the morning news show and, and the highest earner this year was a gentleman called Juha-Pekka Piiroinen with uh, 133 million euros of taxable income. And nobody really knew who he was. So, you know, they didn't even have a, a sort of a photo of him in, on the TV show because all the others in top 10, you know, they're, they're this like gaming company, software uh, investors and, and, and so on and sort of the usual suspect. But the number one guy knew, knew Nobody knew who he was, and interestingly, I mean, this um, taxable taxable income of 133 million—it's actually the highest ever recorded in Finland. Um, that is that is quite a big figure figure for Finland. How controversial 
is this day in Finland as well. We talked about how this, how the income information is reported nationwide in basically all media outlets. But are there any individuals arguing against it that this should not happen? People should have more privacy and that should be respected. Yes, absolutely. And a couple of years ago, the tax authorities actually introduced a reform whereby um, if you earn more than a hundred thousand euros a year, you can ask for your tax information to be hidden. Uh, so so what happens in every um, year is that the tax authority actually puts together this list and sends it to the media outlets. Um, but so so if you ask for your information not to be included, uh, so the journalists then have to go to their individual tax offices and, and dig up this information. So, I mean, yeah. Yes, I, I think this year it was about just short of 1,000 Finns who wanted to hide their tax information. But then, you know, as I said, you can find out. You just have to go to the tax office. So, so there is that argument, and there are those people who are critical of the kind of the nature in which this is done. I mean, you know, we have these noble arguments of how this is uh, uh, fundamental to a functioning democracy. But when then the way the media handles this is really about sort of looking at who the super rich are and this kind of a tabloid journalism style of doing it and not everybody is a fan of that. Mm. You, you already mentioned that there was a surprise name in the list of, of the highest earners but what else did you see on that list? What does it tell us about Finnish economy and, and where the money is coming from in Finland? You probably have like the gaming companies over there for example and a lot of IT yeah. and startups. Yeah, so if I look at the top 10, uh, there's actually, well, one noteworthy uh, news is that there's no women. I think the first woman on the list is, uh, it's uh, number 20. Uh, and then, you know, again, you have to browse uh, to no, 25. So it's very male dominated. I think of the top 100 earners, it's almost 90% are men. And a lot of them are actually this sort of new money, you know, um, uh, investors, software, gaming. There's very little sort of this old uh, industrial families money on, on this list anymore. And, and this is something that has really, really changed in Finland over, let's say, the past decade or two. Mm. Petri, this day has been nicknamed the National Jealousy Day. I'm wondering how envious have you been feeling today when you've seen how much some other Finns have been earning? <laughs> very, very envious indeed. Uh, I don't, but I have to comfort myself with the fact that I don't see any journalist in the top 100 here. So you know, I'm not in the software business, so you know, I, I shouldn't really feel bad about my, myself. After this interview, I'm going to go to one of those search engines on the newspapers' websites to find out how your friends have been earning. I'm going to go and find out how much my wife makes. <laughs> Fair enough. Petri Burtsov in Helsinki, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And finally... In the program, Dubai Design Week is back with its eighth season this week. The annual event is one of the region's most popular cultural spectacles, welcoming thousands of visitors from all corners of the globe. And one of those visitors is Monaco's own Grace Jolton, who joins me now on the line. Good morning, Grace. Can you tell us about what the mood is like in Dubai and what you've seen so far? Yeah, hi. I'm standing in the middle of the trade show and everyone is just so excited and enthusiastic. It's all going up um, today for the trade show. But yesterday the pavilions opened and it was really lovely to just walk around and meet all these designers from the region. What have been some of the highlights you've seen so far? What's caught your attention? 
Well, the theme this year is design with impact. So there's a strong emphasis on sustainability, but I personally really love the Al... I'm going <laughs> to try and pronounce this correctly, the Al Gore installation by Sara Al Reyes. She's a Bahraini um, designer, and she made this like, amazing pavilion using fishnets that were used for pearl diving. Um, so that was fantastic. And yeah, there's just so much going on and... Yeah, I also really love the, the carpets. They're amazing. I've visited Irwan McCovey and they're doing this presentation of like all these designers from the Gulf region and they're just stunning designs. Sounds very good. Can you tell us more about this year's theme? It's called Design with Impact. Yes. <laughs> um, so sustainability, I think, in this region is a big issue. Um, but Yes, there are so many people coming up with innovative solutions for construction. Um, for example, there are these two collectives who are creating bricks from date poles and um, like seashells used in restaurants from seafood. <laughs> and then another installation was really cool. It was by Quartz Architect. Um, and it's debris suspended in midair by just some thin wire. And it's two tons and you're supposed to walk underneath it and look at this debris, and it's sort of meant to provoke and make you think of all the construction and demolition that's happening, where is this debris going to go? It sounds impressive. You mentioned a couple of names already, Grace, but I wonder, can you tell us anything more? Which designers should we have our eye on for the future? Well, I think, obviously, I'm at Dubai Design Week. I have to mention Emirati designers. There's a presentation happening at the trade show, which is opening today. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm scared to like butcher all these names, but Ogni as well is a an architectural practice that's based here, and yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a busy busy event. I'm wondering, obviously, you've been there for 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 a day now, and and you've seen quite a lot, and you have a pretty good impression of what this event is all about. What do you think this kind of an event does? Does it help to establish the region and Dubai as a creative hub? Do you think that is some kind of reputation and brand building at the same time? Definitely. And it's everything's hosted in the Dubai Design District, or D3 as they call it, um, because the government is really trying to push design as a destination, sorry, design, Dubai as a destination for design. Um, and I think it is working. This is currently the eighth edition of the fair. And, you know, I think more and more people are coming here. More and more people from the region are coming to Dubai specifically to be safe. Um, so it's, it's definitely working. I think it is becoming a creative hub for the Middle East. Just finally, Grace, what else is on your agenda? How, how does this day continue, for example? What are you going to be doing? I think today I'm just going to look around all the different stands and yeah, really try and torch as many people, as many architects and designers. But I do have my eye on the Vertico Lounge, um, so maybe I'll stop there as well. How much networking <laughs> is happening over there? What happens in the evenings when people have finished the official part of the event? I mean, lots of drinks um, in beautiful houses. But, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> say, well, the Architectural Design Awards or Architectural Digest Design Awards are happening tonight, so I think everyone will be going there. 
It sounds like you're having quite a good visit to Dubai. Monaco's Grace Cholton there. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Moran Coombs and Emma Searle, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Nora Huell. After the headlines, there is more music on the way, and the briefing is live at the usual time at midday in London, 7am in Washington, D.C. And of course, The Globalist. This programme returns at the same time tomorrow at 7am UK time. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for tuning in.